Tonight I have a message the Lord has laid on my heart, been praying about what God would have me to preach tonight, and uh, he made it quite clear to me um, the topic that he would have me to go to. So if you would, uh, find in your Bibles tonight Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, this will be a familiar passage of Scripture to you. And uh, we're going to read the first five verses of that chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, and you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, if you got it, say amen. amen. And this is what it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain, or two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I want to use for a title tonight, The Power of God's Presence. The power of God's presence. You may be seated. As I was praying about it, it became very apparent the Lord wanted me to speak about the presence of God. And if you start looking at that in, in the Bible, you'll find the presence of God from cover to cover. Because God, uh, well, He's omnipresent, He's in every place at all times. But also, there are times when He manifests His presence to us. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to see an incredible manifestation of the presence and the power of God. Here we're going to see the call and commission of the great prophet Isaiah. Now, this is chapter 6, and chronologically, uh, I think we would place this at the beginning of the book, but there are five chapters before it. But here Isaiah is going back to give us a glimpse into the time that God calls him into the ministry. And so we're going to see the call of Isaiah. And God in this chapter is pulling back the veil of heaven. And Isaiah is seeing a vision of the throne of God. What a vision that, that is. And he sees these fiery angelic beings, and he's seeing a vision of the glory and the majesty of God. He's seeing, like I said, the veil of heaven is being pulled back, and God is manifesting his presence to Isaiah. He's making himself known. And in the presence of God, Isaiah is going to be transformed. He is going to be touched and cleansed and changed by the power of God for the purpose of God. And let me tell you, there is power in the presence of God. It was true then, and it's still true today. Is there an amen in the house for that? The power of God's presence is still true today. Now, as we began looking at this, I want to say, first of all, that times were changing in that day. Times were changing for Isaiah. Um, 
Now, just a little bit of the history there. Uh, as far as I can, uh, uh, as far as my understanding is, about 150 years before Isaiah, Israel goes through a civil war, and you have the countries divided, the northern and the southern kingdom. And the larger territory kept the name of Israel, and the southern territory uh, is Judah. And uh, the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And Isaiah's ministry in, in, in most of the, uh, primarily, is actually going to be to Judah and to Israel. Uh, of course, he still speaks to us today through the word of God. And he's going to pronounce uh, the fact that Israel is already coming under judgment from Syria, and he's going to say, if you guys don't turn around, the same thing that's happening there already is also going to happen to you. So Isaiah has a ministry. He's going to be preaching uh, to these people uh, of Judah. Now, just to... Uh, kind of give you an understanding of what we're looking at. The very first part of this verse, one, says, in the year that King Uzziah died. That's how he starts this chapter. So Isaiah wants to give us a point in time of what's happening in history. He wants to give us an idea of what's going on. See, this was a big deal when King Uzziah died. Now, generally speaking, Uzziah had been a great king. If you look back in the Bible, you'll find out that he was a great king. He came to the throne at the age of 16. He barely even had a driver's license at the time, and he reigned for 52 years. Uh, at 16 years old, he's sitting on the throne. And uh, over in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you can read all about him, but in verse 4, it says, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And you'll find in verse five of that same chapter, it said, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So if you look in that 26th chapter of Second Chronicles, you're gonna find out that he was a successful military leader. You're gonna find out that he was a skilled builder. He was famous among other nations. He had agricultural success. He dug many wells. He had a strong fighting force. He had the best of weaponry of the day. In fact, they even invented advanced weapons that would shoot multiple arrows and hurl stones. Uh, the Bible calls them engines. So I'm guessing this was like a, a, an arrow machine gun of the day. I don't know what it was, but some kind of advanced weaponry under the reign of Uzziah. See, God had prospered Uzziah and the nation in a big way so long as he was serving the Lord. But Uzziah's life came to a tragic end, unfortunately. And you're going to find in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, this is what it says. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. So Uzziah was lifted up with pride at the latter part of his years. And because of that, he went where he did not belong to do what he was not allowed to do. And because of it, God struck him with leprosy. 
while he's in the act of getting ready to offer incense, he gets angry because the priests are saying, you can't be here. This is reserved specifically for uh, certain people to do. And he gets angry. And while he's in the middle of being angry, they see leprosy comes up on his forehead and he runs out knowing because God was bringing a judgment on him. And because of this sin, a great king, this wonderful king that, that ruled for 52 years, because of sin, he faced a tragic end and died a leper in obscurity. Can you imagine that? That the end of his life, it's a warning really that we always have to be vigilant no matter what stage in our life. If, if God is prospering us, we need to know how to abound, as Paul says. We also need to know how to be abased. And we have to make sure and foolproof that we finish well. And Uzziah uh, unfortunately had uh, a mark in his history. But still the Bible records him as a good king. Things uh, that were blessed in his day. So when, when Isaiah opens this chapter and he says in the year that King Uzziah died, it was kind of a big deal. There were some people that were born into the kingdom at that time who had never known another king other than him. They had never known anything other than prosperity. And so it was a big deal. And, and Isaiah may have been discouraged at the moment. You know, he's seeing this king, this, the, the great king that had prospered the nation. He may have been discouraged in a moment. He may have been thinking about uncertainty in the future. Who is going to sit on this throne now? What's going to happen? Will the enemies rise up? Is there going to be famines? Is there going to be hardship that's going to come to this nation? What, what is going to happen in this nation? And I think Isaiah, maybe to an extent, was having some sort of a, uh, some sort of a, uh, a discouragement, perhaps. And I believe that Isaiah in that moment did what any, uh, any God-fearing uh, person would do and he began to seek the Lord. I believe he actually went to the temple to seek God. Isaiah was looking around and he was seeing things that was happening. He was seeing uh, uh, his nation was spiraling downward and he was seeing that, that Uzziah has died, this great king, and now he's saying, I need to seek God because I don't know the, the future. I don't know what's going to happen, but I need to look to God. And in the process of doing that, Isaiah receives a vision of God's glory. Isaiah gets a presentation. God gives Isaiah a presentation of his glory. And so the first thing that he notices is Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne. Look again at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. See, Isaiah was seeing things falling apart. He was seeing the tragic end of a good king. He was seeing uncertainty, but suddenly he was also seeing the Lord on his throne. He was seeing his nation was falling apart. He was seeing things are not going like I think they ought to be going, but it says he also saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He was seeing the throne in Judah was empty per se, but he was seeing the throne and glory was not empty. He was seeing the Lord was sitting on his throne. 
Isaiah was beginning to catch a glimpse of glory. God was on his throne. You don't have to ask, where is God in all this? Maybe that was a question Isaiah asked. Maybe he said, where is God in all this? Well, we don't have to ask because God's in the same place that he's always been. He's seated on his throne in glory, his everlasting throne. It's where he has been. It's where he'll always be. God is on his throne in glory. It didn't matter what king was sitting on the throne in Judah so long as God is sitting on his throne. I love that. So Isaiah, first of all, he gets a vision of the Lord on his throne. And it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. See, God is sovereign over all the universe. You realize that? That everything in this universe is subject to God's command. Whatever he says, it's going to be. Whatever he purposes to do, it's going to come to pass. God holds all things together, and he holds all things in his hand. And Isaiah was seeing the Lord on his throne, but he wasn't just seeing him on his throne. He was seeing him elevated in supreme, in glory, in majesty. He was seeing the creator, the sustainer above all things, seated on his throne, high above all the problems on this earth, high above all the things things that are going on on this earth. He was seeing the Lord of glory on the throne of glory, and he was elevated in that glorious throne. I'm saying tonight, as Isaiah is catching this glimpse, I'm also seeing us in this day, seeing a nation falling apart. There's division throughout the, this nation and in the world. There, there is bitterness and hatred and evil that's going on all around in the world. And I'm saying to you, it really doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne, who's the king, who's the president. What matters is that you get your eyes a little higher and you see the Lord of glory sitting on his throne in glory because he's the one that puts kings up. He's the one that puts kings down. God is supreme. High and lifted up. <laughs> Isaiah is getting a presentation from God at a time that he really needed it. At a time that he really needed it. Psalm 103 verse 19 says this, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. I love that. And not only that, but he saw the Lord's train fill the temple. And I'm not talking choo-choo, in case you're wondering. This is like a wedding dress has a long tail. This is a train that he's talking about. You ever seen where they, they have the big long tail and there's people carrying it behind? And, and the kings in that day would also have these long tails because it, it signified that they were important. Because when you got this robe with this super long tail that's 100 feet long or whatever, it's really hard to get anything done. And so they were saying, I'm too important to do anything. That's why I've got this super long tail. That was, that was basically what they were saying in that day. So Isaiah is looking at this and he's seeing it. He's saying, I saw the Lord on his throne and I saw him high and lifted up and his train was so long, it literally filled the entire temple because he was saying God is of absolute supreme importance and there's no one more important than him. That's what he's saying about this, 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 uh, this train that filled the temple. 
Now, I want you to also recognize this. I believe Isaiah went to the temple here, but he's catching a glimpse of that heavenly throne. He's catching a glimpse of that heavenly throne, that heavenly temple. All the things that were made down here were a pattern after that which is in glory. And so he's coming and seeking God, and God is giving him a higher vision and said, look at the real cool one up here. <laughs> he's saying, check this out. And so not only that, not only is he seeing the, the Lord on his throne high and lifted up, his train is filling the temple, but now he sees these fiery servants of God. We're going to see that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. Now the word seraphim means burning one. It means fiery being or burning noble. So these are fiery servants of God. The, the uh, word there means burning one. And so Isaiah is seeing this vision of the throne in glory. He's seeing the glory and the majesty of God. And no doubt there were myriads of, of angelic beings and creatures in that throne room. I don't know what all Isaiah actually was seeing at the time. But what caught his attention were these seraphim above the throne. He was seeing these uh, that were up above the throne. And they were these fiery angelic beings, these burning ones. What a sight that must have. I, I can't even picture what these guys look like or, you know, whatever they, I don't even know what shape they were, but we know that they have wings and they have six of them. And Matthew Henry commented about the seraphim, and I think it's helpful to include. He said, the seraphim burn in love to God and zeal for his glory against sin. These are holy creatures in the throne room of God, these burning ones. Now look again at what it says. Each one, in verse 2, each one had six wings. With twain or two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. So with two, he covers his face. That is meaning he's not worthy to look on the full glory of God. These fiery angelic beings are saying they're covering their face because they're not worthy to look on the glory of God. And then it says also that with two wings, they cover their feet. And that is to say they're not worthy to stand in the presence of God. That they're trying to cover as much of themselves as they can because they're not worthy in the presence of God. And then it says with two, they did fly. That means that they are ready at attention and swift to service to God. Now we should notice the proportion. They have four wings covering themselves because they're unworthy and two wings are set aside for service and worship to God. It's interesting to note that, and Charles Spurgeon had a quote about that. Uh, David Guzik had located that. I want to repeat it for you uh, by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Thus they have four wings for adoration and two for active energy, four to conceal themselves and two with which to occupy themselves in service. We may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humble in his presence. 
Veneration must be in larger proportion than vigor. Adoration must exceed activity. Listen, as Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her much serving, so must sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. So even these fiery angelic beings recognize the beauty of enjoying the presence of God. And the seriousness that it was to even be in God's presence and with four wings of their six, they covered themselves to hide themselves, unworthy to even look at God and stand in his presence. And with two wings, they were quick to serve God. Pretty amazing. And not only that, but now he hears the proclamation of the seraphim. Look at verse three. And one cried unto another and said, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. Now, sometimes we use Christianese a lot and we forget what the words mean. And so I want to remind us the word holy means separate or apart from. The vessels in the temple were set apart, they were holy to the Lord. They were set apart for the service of God. Just like God will choose an individual and that individual is set apart, holy to the Lord in service to God. So when they're saying this, it's describing someone or something which is set apart from other people or things. That's what holy is talking about separate and apart from. And so the praise that they're giving is what they call an antiphonal praise. It means these, cher- these uh, seraphim are facing one another and they're crying these things out and then the other one echoes it back to them. And so as they are echoing their praises, they say, holy, holy, holy. And in the Hebrew language, that's adding emphasis. When you say it once, got it. When you say it twice, okay. But when you say it three times, it's of the most highest order. So they were saying this, they were saying the Lord is holy in the highest degree. And not only were they adding emphasis with every praise, but they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And with that, they're praising the Father, and they're praising the Son, and they're praising the Holy Spirit. They're praising God in three persons, blessed Trinity. They're praising the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every time they say, holy, 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 they're praising the God who is God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Pretty amazing. John MacArthur said this, the primary thrust of the threefold repetition of God's holiness is to emphasize God's separateness from and independence of his fallen creation, though it implies secondarily that God is three persons. So they're accomplishing two things In this praise, really, holy, holy, holy. See, God himself is holy. You realize that? It's an attribute of God. Everything that God 
everything that he does is holy because God himself is holy. And the Bible says without holiness we will not see the Lord. And so we too must be separated to God through Jesus Christ, his son, or we can never approach the throne of God. But through Jesus Christ, being separated unto Christ, in Christ, we can approach the throne of glory because Christ is our righteousness. That's amazing. So that's what it means when he's saying holy. It means apart from, separate from. God is above this creation. He is holy and righteous. Not only that, but there was power in their praise. Look at verse four. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So he's hearing these, these seraphim crying back and forth to one another, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And when they're shouting these praises, he's literally feeling the ground shaking underneath of him at the glory and the majesty of the praises that these fiery, burning, angelic beings are shouting back and forth at one another. The ground is literally shaking. It's as if he's standing in the doorpost and, and he's feeling the post shaking around them every time they shout, holy, holy, holy. Like thunder speaking. Amazing. He's feeling these things. He's hearing their praises. He's hearing the proclamation of the seraphim. He's, he's hearing their praises and he's feeling the ground shaking and the door post is moving and what is happening is the glory of God is filling the house. Uh, the glory of God is filling the house. I think of like, uh, it says that the house was filled with smoke and I think of like the, the pillar of the cloud in the wilderness. And I think about the smoke on Mount Sinai that ascended up. And I think about the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple in Solomon's day. What was happening? The house was filled with smoke. The Shekinah glory of God was coming down in there. And Isaiah was in the presence of God. You see that? Isaiah is in the presence of God. And he's catching a glimpse of God. Not only that, I want you to realize this, because we've come to the place where we're recognizing Isaiah is, is there. Isaiah is at the place where God is. He's seeing this. God is showing him a vision, and heaven is opening, and he's seeing God on his throne, and he's experiencing these things, and he's hearing these things, he's seeing these things he's never seen before, because there's power in God's presence. It's what we're talking about tonight. There's power in God's presence. See, God is drawing Isaiah to himself. Who's initiating this vision? Who's showing, who's opening the veil of heaven? It's God. God's the one that's making this happen. 
God is opening the heavens and, and showing these things to Isaiah. God is manifesting his presence. He is removing that veil. He's allowing Isaiah to see into that heavenly temple, to see into that throne room of God, to see and hear things he's never seen and never heard before. And he's seeing the Lord is high and lifted up. And he's seeing those uh, angels, those fiery angelic beings that are shouting, holy, holy, holy. And the ground is shaking and the post is moving and the house is filled with smoke and Isaiah is, is, is in the presence of God and the only thing he can say is found in verse 5. He says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. That's all that he could say in that moment. Woe is me. In the chapters before, he pronounced several woes in his prophecies, but now Isaiah says, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm in the presence of God. See, Isaiah, what is happening? Isaiah is seeing himself in the light of God. That's what's happening. Isaiah is looking for God, and now the light has come on, and Isaiah is seeing himself in the light of God. And all he can say is, woe, woe. Whoa. I love what Alexander McLaren said about this. He said, when we see ourselves, he said, we see ourselves when we see God. We see ourselves when we see God. One flash on a heart, the thoughts of God's holiness. And like an electric searchlight, it discloses flaws which pass unnoticed in dimmer light. The easygoing Christianity has no deep sense of sin because it has no clear vision of God. That's what he's saying. And Isaiah has this sense. Why? Because the lights have come on. The lights have come on for Isaiah. He's seeing, he's seeing himself. So let me tell you this. The presence of God reveals who we are. Look again at verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Wow. Bright lights reveal every flaw. That's why some restaurants keep their lights down really low. <laughs> Bright lights will show you everything, every detail. A dark room, you don't have to worry about what the paint looks like. You don't have to worry about dusting. You don't have to worry about anything. But if you've got bright lights, it shows everything. And now Isaiah is in the brightest of all lights. And everything is plain and clear. And that's why he says, woe is me. See, when we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and his righteousness, we're going to be like Isaiah, without defense, and we are going to be without excuse. And the presence of God is clearly going to reveal our need for mercy and grace. That's what's happening. Isaiah is seeing his need for mercy and grace. Now look at this. The presence of God demands a response. 
The presence of God demands a response. So he's in the presence of God. Now he's seeing himself in the light of God. And the presence of God demands that you do something. So Isaiah, he's devastated, really, if you think about it. He was probably a good guy by human standards. But now he sees God. And he's devastated. Everything that I even thought that I was, I realize I'm not. I'm undone in the sight of God. He, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a nation full of people just like me that have dirty mouths too. Isaiah said, anything that I thought I was, now I can see clearly I am nothing. I am undone. I'm like a dead man. I can do nothing. I'm totally coming apart. He's devastated in the presence of God, and the presence of God demands a response. What is happening now? Isaiah is grieving in the sight of God. He's grieving over his sin, is he not? He's grieving over, the, over the, the present state of his own heart, the present state of his own lips. He's, he's grieving in the sight of God. What he's doing is actually repenting in the sight of God. He's turning away from himself in the direction he, he was going, and he's turning to God, and he's seeing himself, and he says, whoa, I'm in bad shape. I need some help here. That's what's happening here. He's seeing himself. He's repenting in the sight of God. Why? Because the presence of God demands a response. And Isaiah was responding in the right way. And you have to ask yourself, well, what caused this response in Isaiah? What was it? What was it? it, it well, it, it wasn't the throne itself. It wasn't the angels, as incredible as they were. It wasn't the praise. It wasn't the shaking in the house. It wasn't the smoke that filled the house. Let me tell you what it was. It was the presence of God himself. You're going to find that in verse 5. He says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Look at the last part of that verse. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's why he was undone. It wasn't because of the view. It wasn't because of the angels. It wasn't because of the shaking. It wasn't because of the praise. It wasn't because of the smoke. He says, I have seen the Lord. And that's what shook him to his core. The Lord himself. And so we say, well, who is this king of glory? We say, well, it's God. Yeah, but who is this king of glory? Who is the one that's on his throne high and lifted up? Who is the one that the angels are continuously praising? Who is the king, the Lord of hosts? Well, I'll tell you, he is the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of 10,000. He is the son of righteousness. He is the root of David. He is the rock of our salvation. He's the prince of peace, the mighty one of Jacob. Isaiah would say later on in another prophecy, he said, he is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. We know him as the child that was born and the son that was given. It is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. That's who he's seeing. 
Isaiah is seeing the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God, high and lifted up. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because a guy by the name of the Apostle John quoted Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, in John chapter 12, verse 40, and then by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he added this in verse 41 of John chapter 12. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That's how we know who Isaiah was seeing. If you read that, you'll find out that that is speaking of Jesus himself. And that, Isaiah didn't know him as Jesus yet, but he knew that's the eternal son of God. And John gives us that information. Now, there is cleansing in the presence of God. Cleansing in the presence of God. See, Isaiah had already seen himself, as we said, and he'd already confessed. He said, I'm a man with unclean lips. And he was undone and grieving over, he was repenting over his sin. You understand that? He's repenting over his sin in the sight of God. And he needed cleansing, and God was going to give him that cleansing. God was going to give Isaiah the cleansing that he needs. So look at verse 6. I want you to notice the cleansing agent. Verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand. There it is. Which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. It's interesting, this burning one, this fiery angelic being, uses tongs to get the coal off the altar. That's one hot fire. But then he puts it in his hand. That sounds like something I would do, <laughs> not an angel. He puts it in his hand. I think that's to show us that, that God is not impersonal. The fire of God, which is what we see on this altar, is so much so that not even an angel can reach in. So pure. But yet he takes the coal from off the altar and he puts it in his hand. That is to say that God is not impersonal, but he comes right to us with his own hand even. See, this seraphim was a messenger of God. He was doing God's work, and God, in a personal way, was going to take this coal to Isaiah. So I want you to notice this about verse 6. I want you to notice there's an altar, there's a fire, and there's the live coal. We're talking about the cleansing agent. Now, the altar is where sin is dealt with, right? The altar is where sin is dealt with. We obviously know there's a fire because you're not going to have a live coal unless there's a fire there. So the fire, I believe, speaks of the just wrath of God poured out on sin. And then we have the live coal, which is the result of the sacrifice, and it represents Christ, our sacrifice, and his cleansing blood. You follow me? So we're talking about the cleansing agent. So the cross of Christ is the altar where sin is dealt with. And Jesus bore the full wrath or fire of God for us on Calvary. But he wasn't totally consumed because he is sinless and perfect. But our sin was consumed at the cross. 
And so through his death on the cross and the blood that he shed, there is cleansing for sin. So we have the altar where sin is dealt with. We have the fire, which is the wrath of God poured out on sin. We have the live coal, which is the result of the sacrifice, which typifies the fact that it is a finished work of Christ and it is the result and the cleansing agent, the blood of Jesus Christ is what the live coal represents. It is the cleansing agent. So now let's watch this. Let's play this out. The area in need of cleansing is found in verse 7. We've talked about the cleansing agent, the live coal from the altar. Now we have the area of cleansing. Verse 7, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this has touched my lips. God knows exactly where we need cleansing. And let me let you in on something else. The mouth is attached to the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks you can clean your mouth up and have a dirty heart. But Isaiah was recognizing, uh, I am a man that's unclean and I have a mouth that's unclean too. And so we have the cleansing agent, the live coal. We have the area that needs cleansing. Isaiah has pointed out specifically, this is a place that I have an issue with. And he needed cleansing from God. And not only that, but God knew that Isaiah was going to speak for him. So God was going to clean his mouth. He was going to purify him with the live coal applied to Isaiah's mouth. And I believe this not only, this outward expression that we see here of the live coal on the lips also signified an even deeper cleansing that was happening on the inside of Isaiah. Isaiah was going to receive not only a cleansing of the mouth, but a cleansing of the heart. So that with a clean heart, he could speak with a clean mouth. God was going to cleanse him. So look at the result of the cleansing agent applied to the area in need of cleansing. The last part of verse 7. Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. What happened when the coal touched the area that needed cleansing? It was cleansed. The cleansing agent, the live coal, was applied to a dirty mouth, and the result was a clean Isaiah. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So Isaiah found cleansing in the presence of God, did he not? We're talking about the power of the presence of God. And Isaiah found cleansing in the presence of God. And because uh, the fact is that, that there is still cleansing in the presence of God today. But we've got to first see ourselves in the light of God. That's what's missing so often is people don't realize they're, they're, they need a cure because they don't know that they're sick. And so many people just brush right over the fact that you have a disease and we offer them a cure, but they don't think they need the cure, so they go on their jolly way and they don't care about it. But when you see yourself in the light of God, you see what you are. Then the grieving and the repenting, and then comes the live coal for the cleansing. And it happens in the presence of God. When you and I see ourselves in the light of God, we realize the same things, don't we? We realize we're unclean. We have a dirty mouth. We have a dirty heart. We realize we need mercy. We realize we need grace. We realize we need cleansing. 
And so what do we do? The same thing. We look to the altar. We look to the cross. We look to the cross. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where the perfect sacrifice was made, where the blood of Jesus was shed, where Jesus bore the full wrath and fire of God for us. And from the cross comes the cleansing agent, the blood of Jesus Christ. And when the cleansing agent is applied to our heart, our iniquity is taken away and our sin is purged there to my heart was the blood applied glory to his name. That's what we're seeing in this. Do you, do you follow me on that? Do you, I didn't lose anybody on this. I hope you see that. It's a beautiful thing. And so today I think we could even say that that live coal is Christ himself, still burning hot. The live coal is Christ himself because what happens when we trust in the finished work of Christ? what he did at the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive cleansing, complete cleansing and a continual cleansing as we walk in fellowship with him. Christ himself in fellowship with Christ is the live coal. It is the cleansing agent. That's beautiful. I'm going to wrap this up here pretty quick. The will of God is found in the presence of God. Look at verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah in the presence of God, having been cleansed, now begins to hear the voice of God. He hasn't heard the voice of God up to this point. He heard everything else going on, but now that he's been cleansed, he begins to hear the voice of God. God is speaking, and it's interesting. God is asking a question. It's interesting. God is saying, who will go for us? I find that fascinating. And so he's there, and he's in fellowship with God now, and that's the difference. Before he was... He was not in fellowship, not in harmony with God. But now he's been cleansed. He's been brought in union. He's been brought into fellowship with God, and he can hear the voice of God. And not only that, he begins to hear the heart of God, the heart of God. What is God's desire? He hears the voice of God speaking, but what is God speaking about? He says, who will go for us? Who is going to take our message? He's saying, he's saying who, who is going to go and speak for us? God is asking the question, and I think today he's still asking the question. Who is willing to go? Who is willing to take the message? Who is willing to come into my presence and let the power of my presence change them? Who is willing to come before the, the lights of glory and, and, and just pour themselves out before the presence of God and repenting in true repentance of the heart and just in honest, in, honestly in the sight of God and letting God do a work inside of them? Who is willing to, to let me do a work in them so that I can send them out and they can do a work? Work for me, the question still today, and God is saying, who will go for us? Who will go? The problem is, I think so oftentimes we're disjointed, and we're not hearing the voice of God, 
as he's speaking. And we're not hearing what the heart of God is because the heart of God is to save souls. The heart of God is he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the heart of God. And the question is still being asked, who's going to go for us? Look, if you desire to hear the voice of God, you've got to stay in the presence of God. Those of you that have served the Lord a long time, you already know that. I don't have to tell you, but I'm reminding myself too. If I want to hear a fresh word from the Lord, if I want to hear what God is saying about something, if I want to know what God is speaking, then I've got to be in the presence of God. I've got to be repenting in the presence of God. I've got to be pouring my heart out in the presence of God. If I want to hear what he has to say, then I've got to have ears that are open to hear what he's saying. And I've got to be where he's speaking. And I've got to be willing to hear what he's saying. And when I hear what he's saying, I've got to be willing to do what he's asking me to do. That's what he's saying. I think of the apostle John. John was always close to Jesus, wasn't he? Always right there. He was always seeing his miracles and hearing his voice and hearing his teaching. He was near to Jesus, and he even laid his head on his bosom. And I don't remember, if maybe I heard dad say this or, or someone else, but the result of that fellowship, one of the results of that fellowship was that the gospel of John was written to the rhythm of the heartbeat of God. John laid his ear on the bosom of Jesus and was hearing the beating heart of the Lord. In the close fellowship with God, literally hearing the heart, but also knowing the heart. And we see the majestic pages of Scripture, the Gospel of John, and what does it do? It lifts Jesus higher and higher, that we might see his glory. That's what happens when you stay in the presence of God. You begin to hear the heart of God and experience things that you would never experience it's true in my own life. I've experienced things that I never thought I could have experienced outside of being in the presence of God and spending time with him. And those of you that have served the Lord for many years, you know that's true. There's been a time where you were undone. There's been a time where it was all you could do just to not weep in the presence of God. There's been a time where you spent hours crying out to God. I know I'm not the only one. There's been a time in your life where there was something burning in your heart and it was all you could do to get back to pray. It was all you could do to pray for that, that one that you met that you didn't even know that had a need and asked you to pray. It was all you could do to come to the house of the Lord. You, you were excited and it didn't matter what was going on or what was happening. You were just glad to be in the presence of God's people. Why? Because you had something of the heart of God beating inside of you. Because you had been in the presence of God. And you were hearing the voice of God. And you were feeling the power of God. And it was changing you and making you more like Jesus. And that's what's happening with Isaiah. God is transforming him. There's a desire to serve God that gets developed in the presence of God. That's what you see in the last part of verse 8. And then said, I, here am I. Send me. That desire was developed. 
by time in the presence of God. It developed a willing heart. Presence in God, present, time in the presence of God is going to develop a willing heart. And Isaiah receives the call and commission of God in the presence of God. Look at verse 9. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Verse 9, and he, God, said, go. That easy. Here am I, send me. And God said, okay. I've been waiting for somebody that was willing. I think it's that simple. Sometimes we make it too complicated. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Find something and do it. Here am I, send me. Whatever it is. Whatever it may be, because you're going to find out that Isaiah was actually given a very difficult ministry. We see what he's written in the pages of Scripture. It's, it's fantastic. But Isaiah had a difficult ministry. Let's look at that. Let's read the verse, or verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Isaiah was given a ministry to preach to people who were not going to respond favorably. God was, through his preaching, was actually going to harden these people. And let me, let me make a statement about that. It wasn't that God was just hardening these people. He was making solid what was already in their heart. So, as Isaiah begins to speak, the light comes. And what does it do? It reveals that they're already blind. How are you going to find out if you're blind? When the light comes, they can't see it. It revealed they were blind. When he begins to speak, it's going in their ears. But what happens? It reveals that they're already deaf. And so in the presence of the light, in the presence of the preaching, what happens is they begin to make solid what is already there. When the heat is applied to the clay, it gets hard. And that's what's happening. People that would not repent, though if they would hear, and if they would receive the message, he would heal their hearts, he would change them. But he says they're already deaf. They're already blind. When the light comes on and the cockroaches run around, the light didn't make that a cockroach. It just showed you that it was. And that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then said I, Lord, how long? See, Isaiah is given a very difficult ministry, but he was still willing to go. He was still willing to go. God's calling is not always easy. It may not always be glamorous. It may be the opposite of what you thought it would end up being. But Isaiah was still willing to go and do the call that God gave him to do. And the call was, you're going to preach and you're not going to have success. You're going to preach and it's not going to work out for you. 
You're going to be preaching to deaf ears and blind eyes. And Isaiah says, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long? And God says, until the cities be wasted, verse 11, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. God was saying, you keep on preaching until there's no one left to preach to. Said, there's not going to be anybody left, but you just keep on preaching. You keep on shining the light. You keep on preaching the word. You keep on going, Isaiah, because that's what I've given you to do until there's nobody left and they're not even in the country and it's just a desolate hillside. You keep on preaching if the owls are the only ones listening. That's what God's saying. Keep on going. That was the call that God gave to Isaiah. That's not a glamorous call. You want me to preach to people that won't listen, that won't, that can't see, and when in the middle of it, they're just going to walk out, and then eventually there's just going to be no one left? (laughs) No wonder he said, how long? Wow. And the same goes for us. That's the same thing God speaks to us. You keep on going. You keep on preaching. You keep on teaching. You keep on working for God. You keep on doing what God called you to do. Why? Because the number one person you got to make happy is God. And when he gave you a work to do, you had better perform the work he gave you to do. Even if it means you're standing in a room that's empty, preaching the word. That's what happened to Isaiah. And finally, hope is found in the presence of God. God didn't leave him without hope. Look at verse 13. But yet, in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten. As a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. That's kind of a complex verse. But he's saying, I'm going to have a remnant. God always has just a There's always a little flock. There's always a a remnant. And God is saying, I'm still going to have a little bit that are going to listen. And even those are going to face some judgment. That's why it says they shall be eaten. Even the the remnant is going to face some difficulties. But then he says, as the teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves. He's saying, when the tree looks dead, you look outside, the tree looks dead, the leaves are off the trees. There's just a bunch of branches. He's saying the tree looks dead, but there's still life in it. Some people say even even like a stump that's cut off, like a tree that's been cut down, there's still a stump there, but God's saying there's still gonna be life in it. And it's just gonna be waiting for the spring of God's favor for it to sprout. Isaiah, your ministry, well, it's not going to go like you would hope. But it's going to go, and it's going to go according to my plan and my purpose. And I'm going to accomplish what I intend to accomplish. And I'm going to do my will. And don't lose hope, because there's hope in the presence of God 
Isaiah got a tough call, but he also got hope. We're living in a tough day. Just the way it is. Don't give up. If you're going to stand strong, if you're going to preach the truth, it may not be easy. It wasn't for Isaiah, but there's life in the stump. <laughs> there's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be a few. And since there's always going to be a few, you keep on going and let God move in your life. I'm going to take just a moment, and we're going to take about, I don't know, just a few minutes to worship the Lord. And while we do that, I'm going to invite you just where you are to take just a few moments with God. And just maybe you need to renew something in your life, a commitment in your life. God, give me a fresh passion. Give me a fresh vigor for the things of the Lord. And if you'll do that, I believe that God will light a new fire inside of your heart. I believe that he'll begin to make a transformation happen just like he did for Isaiah in the presence of God. You can stand with me tonight. Let's sing just a few courses of this song together. Thank you, Lord.